Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Canadian government is dropping the requirement that domestic and outboard international travelers be fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Is it time to move on from the pandemic? We'll discuss that. The Ontario NDP expected to take the first steps in appointing an interim leader. Sabrina Nanji, the publisher of Queen's Park Observer, will talk to us about those details. And how has the crypto crash exposed the lies behind the financial sector and all the stories we've heard over the last couple of weeks? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The big announcement yesterday, of course, is, uh, well, the federal government will soon be scrapping vaccine mandates for Canadians looking to travel by train or plane. Infectious disease experts say that these changes are not going to have much of an impact on Canada's COVID-19 caseload, but important nonetheless. Global's Kyle Benning has details. Starting Monday, more Canadians will be allowed to travel by plane and train as Ottawa looks to scrap the passenger vaccine mandate. Queen's University infectious disease specialist Dr. Gerald Evans says while some subvariants are widespread in other countries, the risk to Canada is minimal. The requirement for vaccines isn't really relevant to controlling those numbers, not the least of which is that we know the older vaccines offer protection against Omicron and some lineages. The mandate will be dropped for domestic travelers and international departures. The rules for non-Canadians looking to enter the country and cruise ship passengers remains the same. Kyle Benning, Global News. So what are the impacts? And and I think it's worth reminding ourselves, uh, as Kyle just mentioned in his report, this is probably not in and of itself going to change uh, the, the mess you see at all the airports, especially Pearson. There's a lot more going on there that needs to be addressed. But uh, good news nonetheless. I would uh, bring Dr. Brian Lischie into the conversation. Uh, he is an associate professor in pathology and molecular medicine at McMaster's Immunology Research Center. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Uh, no problem at all. Uh, are, you, are you comfortable with the government's decision? Yeah, I think so. This was always going to... I mean, th- these mandates uh, regarding travel were never intended to be a forever thing, right? So mm-hmm. eventually they were going to be dropped and or gradually dropped, which I guess this is really what this is. And, of course, there'll be some people who say, well, it's about time, and others will be saying, uh, maybe it's a little early, so you can't make everyone happy, but... I think the numbers are, you know, are good. It allowed them to make this decision. And if you think about it, you know, something like 90% of Canadians are vaccinated. So this really is only affecting directly, you know, a sliver of the Canadian pie. Um, those people that uh, haven't been able to travel because they, they chose not to get vaccinated. How transmissible is, is the, the virus right now? Can you quantify that? Uh, it's actually hard to track because most cases now are not getting reported, right? A lot of people, yeah, they get sick and they don't test, or if they do test themselves, they do a rapid antigen test, and of course that doesn't get reported. But, you know, anecdotally, I'm sure we all are still hearing stories about, you know, so-and-so, I, I, my neighbor just got it, or somebody just got it, and the whole family got it. So it's the pandemic's not over. Uh, Omicron is still circulating. There are still people in the hospital. Um, but, um, like I said, the numbers are the best they've been and probably the whole way through. And so it allows the government to start relaxing some of these uh, measures that were put in place um, when the numbers weren't so good. 
what's the and again I'm, I'm probably asking you for mathematical calculations I apologize uh, but if I go sit on a plane next week and say I'm going out to Vancouver or to New York whatever it is uh, if that person beside me has COVID or is tested or no they may or may not know because I won't know am I at risk I mean, and I'm fully vaccinated. I got the booster and everything. But uh, we've heard, as you just mentioned, Doctor, there are people that are fully vaccinated and still get COVID. Yeah, but um, the the numbers we can we can you know hang a hat on are the hospitalization numbers, and those numbers are down. So yes, people are getting infected. The virus is still circulating, but it's not putting people in the hospital like like it used to. Because um, if you are vaccinated and you do happen to get Omicron, you won't be sick enough to end up in a hospital, probably, unless you have, you know, other underlying um, health concerns or reasons why the vaccine may not have worked as well for you as it could for others because you have, um, you know, some form of immunosuppression. So there are still people who are at risk. Uh, that hasn't changed. Uh, and this changing this, uh, dropping these mandates doesn't, necessarily change that they're still requiring mask wearing um you know there are other measures still in place but uh the good news is that we our healthcare system is not um being strained like it was and it's not currently at risk of being overburdened because most people aren't ending up in the hospital even if they do get infected uh, a couple of other points we should bring up here, too. One, as you mentioned, uh, return flights. In other words, people coming to Canada or returning to Canada, as the case might be, uh, are still uh, subjected to these sorts of tests, which I guess makes sense because you don't know who's getting on the plane or what's going on at where the plane's coming from, do you? Yeah, and, and like they mentioned in that news uh, clip that you just played, there are um, other strains that aren't yet common in Canada that are circulating in other parts of the world. So limiting, um, you know, incoming or, or applying the mandate to incoming um, international flights is a way for us to, you know, limit the likelihood that they, they'll arrive here and create any issues. And then the other place where they're keeping them in, in place are cruise ships because, um, as we've known for a long time, cruise ships are sort of a special case. And if a a virus, even if it's Norwalk or something, gets going on a cruise ship because of the confined spaces and so forth. The viruses do very well on cruise ships, so uh, it's a place where it's prudent to to keep some limits in place. Well, exactly, and that's been going on long before COVID. It wasn't a pandemic so mm -hmm. for years now. Uh, when you're living in a closed environment like that, and God knows where where you're going, well, there's nowhere to go. So you're going to be exposed to it one way or another. So that that all makes sense as well. And you mentioned the mask wearing still in the airports is going to be a a mandatory thing for a while. Uh, you talked about the other strains, though, Doctor. Let's let's talk if we could a little bit about that. Uh, as we've gone through other waves and other strains of Omicron and and some of its uh, uh, the ones that predated that, we, we kind of got a warning that, hey, this is happening in this country or this is happening there. Be careful about this. Uh, is there anything that's on the radar right now to suggest that we you know we need to keep an eye on? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, what are what exists now are um, subvariants of Omicron, but there's no evidence that I've I've heard that any of them are particularly worrisome, but, you know, they're keeping an eye on all these things and monitoring them um, in case something pops up. 
and and then it'll be known and, and we'll hear about it. But right now, I don't think there's anything on the horizon that uh, we should be worried about particularly. One thing that is I, I, a little bit troubling anyway was the uh, the anticipation, and, and I know in Hamilton, the chief medical officer was addressing council, I guess, earlier this week, and suggested there's probably going to be a seventh wave uh, sometime this fall, September, October, we don't know exactly when. Uh, is Is that just the course of action here or is there anticipation that something going to be happening when we say a seventh wave i guess we're not even sure if it's omicron or a variant of that as well is what's 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 your thought on on the potential for that to happen well it's based on on modeling and you know the truth is so far they've been pretty good at predicting waves mm-hmm. but and and these things um they sort of go like that they 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 wax and wane um but I think the predictions also are that it'll be, you know, a, a minor, a relatively minor wave compared to some we've had in the past. So maybe it's like the last, uh, the last hurrah for this virus and the pandemic, and and then it'll finally be behind us. With that happening, though. Um... We had, I think, a discussion a little while ago, but, you know, what is the definition of fully vaccinated? Is it the first two shots? Is it getting the booster shots as well? But the the rates, as you say, are very encouraging. It's over 90% right now, which is, which is good. I and mean, that's something we've been shooting for. Uh, are you comfortable that if there's a, a, a seventh wave come fall, uh, autumn, uh, that we're going to be protected enough to, that we can control this? Well, um, you know, unfortunately, the data for the existing mRNA vaccines are the they boost your antibody titers um, to a protective level for a period of months after you receive a dose. And um, while our two-dose vaccination rate is is very high, our three-dose vaccination rate in Canada, I believe, is the lowest of the G7 nations. So, um, you know, Canadians were great about getting the first two doses, not so great about getting that third dose. And there probably, because of that, are some number of people whose whose you know immunity is waning and would benefit from a, a third dose, who could become at risk, um, you know, in 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 the future wave of infections. Uh, that remains to be seen. Hey, I'm not trying to cause any panic here, but I mean, if you're in that situation, I guess you got your second dose some months ago. Uh, and we know that you know, the the efficacy does start to wane a little bit. It might not be a bad idea, I guess. Would that be your advice? Might not be a bad idea to consider that that booster shot sometime around Labor Day or something, just to be prepared. Yeah, well, there'll be lots of people where that it'll be a year since they had their first, their second dose. Yeah, right. So they're definitely on the the tail end of the protection from that vaccination. Of course, a lot of people have been infected, whether they know it or not, but usually they know. Um, and that um, adds to the protection from the vaccine. But um, this virus is pretty good at um, limiting the ability of the host to mount a full immune response because it fights back against the immune system. And so just having, you know, a lot of people sort of, I've even heard the the language, you know, I, I, I've had two doses and then I got infected and now I'm bulletproof. But um, unfortunately, that even that's not necessarily true. Um, 
it depends on how sick you were and how well your body responded to it and so forth. So it's it's actually hard to know uh, what level of protection, even having been infected on top of you know being vaccinated, provides you. Well, case in point, the prime minister just tested uh, positive once again, the second time, and he, and he's fully vaccinated. So, uh, you know, I, I I I've heard that phrase as well, and I I just I'm uncomfortable with anybody saying they're bulletproof. I, I don't know if there is such a thing when it comes to viruses, is there? Or or uh, you don't well, know if you are or you aren't. Yeah, I mean there there were some pathogens in the past for which vaccines were developed, and like the smallpox vaccine highly effective and gave what's known as sterilizing immunity and so you know that virus was eliminated from the planet because that vaccine campaign was uh, very successful so there have been cases in the past where if you're vaccinated you're totally protected and i guess we maybe got a little too used to that or complacent around that um this is a different type of virus and um, it was maybe never realistic to to have developed a vaccine that gave complete sterilizing immunity to everyone who who received the vaccine. What what we now understand is that this is more of a situation where being vaccinated um, may protect you. It is likely to keep you out of the hospital and not burden the healthcare system. And it will limit the spread of the virus in the population, which helps protect those people who are most at risk. Exactly. Uh, it's a, a work in progress, to be sure. And it's always great to, to get your perspective and uh, set the record straight on a number of these issues. Thank you so much for your time today, Doctor. Really appreciate it. Well, not at all. Have a good day. You too. Dr. Brian Litchie, Associate Professor of Pathology and Molecular Medicine at McMaster's Immunology Research Center. Uh, and he echoes what a lot of other uh, epidemiologists and other uh, disease specialists have told us. We're not out of the woods yet. It's looking better and, and the restrictions are being eased. Uh, but, you know, we still have to be wary about what could happen. And even the ministers yesterday when we were making this announcement said, look, at if, if the numbers go back up, we may have to reinstitute that. So just keep that in the back of your mind, too. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the uh, elected, uh, newly re-elected, I guess, really, uh, Doug Ford government hasn't even officially been sworn in. Uh, he hasn't picked a cabinet. Uh, but there is business going on in the Queen's Park area. And most notably, over the last couple of days, it's, uh, well, the two major uh, opposition parties, uh, both the Liberals and NDP, whose leaders resigned on election night uh, for a variety of reasons, as we know. And uh, the word we're getting right now is that the NDP may have uh, picked an interim leader anyway, uh, which is kind of important since they will still form the official opposition. Uh, joining us to talk about all of this, uh, Sabrina Nanji. Uh, Sabrina, of course, is the publisher of Queen's Park Observer and always a welcome guest. Sabrina, I hope you're doing well these days. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. What's what's the word about the NDP right off the bat? Uh, the, the stories we're hearing here is that a, a long-time MPP uh, from the Danforth area is going to be selected. Is, is, is that the word? Yeah, pretty much. It's uh, from what I'm hearing, it's basically a done deal right now. Uh, that would be Peter Tabbins, uh, who most people would know as the MVP for Toronto Danforth. He's he's represented that area since 2006. He's been big on environmental issues. He most recently served as the party's environment and climate change critic. Uh, and he's also got like a bit of a environmental environmental history too. Like he was the head of Greenpeace Canada, um, and so now he has 
basically gotten a resounding um, endorsement, all 31 members of the NDP caucus at, at their meeting on Monday, uh, you know, recommended him essentially for uh, interim leader, which, uh, you know, all but KOs him from uh, the, the race for permanent leader. Uh, you know, Tabin's had run against Andrea Horvath, who, as we all know, resigned uh, on election night after that pretty poor showing for them. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's kind of the beginning of a, of a big internal leadership race for the party. And this is just maybe sort of the first step in that. Is, is Tavins considered to be, I, I, I'm trying to pick the right phrase here, because there have been so many different things banded on, a traditional NDPer? Uh, because that's been one of the inner debates, as you and I have talked about in the past. You know, is the party you know, moving too far to the center? Is that alienating people? Or, or are they sticking too much to old values as opposed to being a 21st century party? All questions they're going to have to answer themselves. But, uh, but where does Tavins on that scale? Yeah, I mean, the party itself is kind of going through this like soul searching existential moment of reckoning right now. You're right that, you know, there's kind of always been this rift between uh, like it's this internal rift, I should say, uh, you know, where um, the, the, the maybe social warrior, more leftist uh, folks in the party feel that the party has gone too, too far towards the center, whereas, you know, the more center left feel like they uh, model themselves after, you know, Western New Democrats who have actually managed to form government, you know, much more often uh, than, than here in Ontario. And obviously we know Ontario's got big uh, liberal and PC brands. And so uh, we have kind of seen the party shift towards the center, but Tavins himself, I think, you know, the, the question is not um, as pressing for him as interim leader. He's kind of just going to be the caretaker now, but I would say, uh, you know, he's viewed in the party as as perhaps maybe more left, certainly more left uh, than, you know, Horvath had kind of been steering that party. And I think that, uh, you know, comes mainly from his environmental stance, you know, that that uh, not necessarily that, you know, the environment is only an, an issue that's important to the to the left side of the political spectrum. But I think he has had some, uh, you know, bold policy uh, proposals on that front. You know, it's hard to kind of get anything through, of course, as we know, when you're official opposition, um, more so just holding the government to account. So I think, uh, you know, for now, it's going to be steady as she goes. But certainly there were other names, you know, being floated uh, that, you know, maybe some some grassroots would have preferred to have seen in there as as this interim leader position. Um, you know, Batilla Karpoch, uh, she represents Parkdale High Park. She's a bit of a rookie. Um, Peggy Sattler over from the London area as well, um, you know, who's uh, sort of taking the lead on, on labor issues. And we all know the party has had a, you know, a, a bit of a, uh, you know, rift with, with even some organized labor groups too. So uh, I think, you know, Tavins will probably... Uh, you know, stave off this uh, this debate maybe for a little bit longer, but certainly whoever is running for the leadership is going to have to face some of these tough questions. Uh, interesting choice. And by the way, just I want to clarify something else if we could that you just mentioned a second ago. Uh, if, if in fact it is Tappins or whomever they, they may decide on here, uh, they can't run for the leadership when that, that thing starts in earnest. Is, is that going to be a rule or is it just a suggestion or is it just kind of a nudge, nudge agreement between the parties? 
Yeah, well, I mean, we might get into some of the um, like inside baseball weeds here, which of course I'm always happy sure. to do. Uh, but yeah, yeah the, the rules of the leadership contest still need to be set out. Uh, we are we're expecting to hear that, you know, within the next two weeks, uh, Tabins is expected to be named today uh, as interim leader. Of course, you know, the party executive and then the party's provincial council needs to kind of uh, rubber stamp this. But when you have uh, 31 members of elected caucus uh, recommending him, you know, it's very unlikely that it will go any other way. Um, so of course, the specific leadership contest rules need to be sorted out. But this kind of all but, you know, Nix's tabins from the race, uh, like we'll see specifically if if he would be allowed to run. But I think it's it's more of an expectation and a convention for now. Um, and yeah, I think we can we could say, you know, it, it's probably safe to say he won't be running for the, the permanent job. Uh, and because 10 years ago, he did run for that job, of course. And, and that's he, right. He was yeah. defeated by Andrea Horvath. Uh, but that's 10 years ago. And uh, I, I, there are so many other names. And this, of course, started on election night when, when Andrea dropped her name and said, that's it. I'm, I'm passing the torch, I think was the phrase. You mentioned Peggy Sattler. And that's a name that came up a few times from, from London, uh, who uh, has been around for a while. Uh, and as you mentioned, the labor critic. And there's a lot of concern that I've heard from some of the folks in the NDP that, you know, we kind of lost some of the labor vote. Not all of it, but a lot of the trade unions and, and the auto workers seem to gravitate towards the PCs. Uh, and of course, they paid a price for that. Uh, you got to figure that she's going to have a prominent position, at least in the shadow cabinet, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'll, I've got my uh, eyes peeled for whenever they they name their critics. Uh, but you know, Sattler's also taken on a much bigger role uh, just before the House rose um, earlier this year for the election. Uh, she was also the House leader as well, and so yeah. that kind of uh, you know you've got a bigger role at, on the legislative side of things. And of course, you know, as official opposition, that really matters. There's a lot of behind the scenes um, negotiating and maneuvering with the. Uh, government, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, committee makeups, that type of thing. Now, of course, you know, the Ford government uh, won a resounding majority with 83 seats, so they can pretty much do whatever they want. But, you know, uh, the, 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 the you know, most recent House leader for, on the government side, Paul Calandra, has kind of, you know, made a point to, uh, you know, be more cooperative. And I think that that was also Sattler's uh, view as well. Now, obviously, the P they, the NDP did, was not so happy when the PCs, you know, took such legislative moves as, uh, you know, ramming legislation through due process without debate, skipping committee stage, not allowing the public to weigh in, that type of thing. So, uh, you know, uh, with a majority, obviously, and such a big one, the, the government can pretty much do whatever it wants. And now the NDP and the Liberals are both, you know, weakened and preoccupied with their own internal leadership races. So I think, um, you know, th th this uh, this is going to be a moment of reckoning. It's a, it's a pivotal moment for the parties and, you know, Tavins and whoever is on that, um, you know, critic team, it, their, their work is definitely going to be cut out for them. Yeah. And we, wait, when I mentioned Peggy Sadler, I mean, she may in fact run for the leadership. Uh, you know, I know her name's been batted around and, uh, and again, you know, once Peter Tavins takes this post, if in fact, that's why it's going to be uh, uh, later on today, uh, you got to wonder about uh, Carposh and, and uh, Jennifer French and Sadler. And uh, Merritt Stiles is another uh, name that we hear bandied about an awful lot as a potential leadership uh, hopeful as well. You hear, though, I mean, the word on the street, and it, you know, not just not what they say in front of the microphones, but talking to MPPs off the record about issues like that, because everybody who may be out that front there may not be that popular within the party. And, and let's face it, personalities do matter within some of these leadership races. We've seen that happen federally and provincially in the past. Is, is there a name for, for the leadership itself that jumps out at you now that said might be the front runner? 
Uh, well, you know, uh, typically, I mean, you're right, you know, there's a lot of talk sort of behind closed doors because uh, they like to wait until, uh, I guess, you know, it's like the, the body is still warm, we should say, yeah. I, I should put it that way with, with Horvath, you know, she's still technically the leader right now until this passing of the torch actually happens. But, you know, I think Marit Stiles is, is definitely a front runner. A lot of people in the party like her. She's very personable. Uh, uh, you know, she, she's a hard hitter in question period, which of course matters, especially when you're in official, uh, official opposition. Um, and and uh, Catherine Fife as well over from Waterloo, you know, she's held really prominent roles, finance critic, uh, treasury board critic. Uh, she's she's also very well spoken to. Um, but, you know, it's not only just about personality, like, of course, that plays a huge role. But one thing that, you know, Horvath had trouble overcoming was the fact that she often polled more popularly than the NDP itself. And so I think this is, you know, a big moment for the party um, and might even like be the first signal of, you know, a, a change in Ontario politics and the spectrum. I mean, we saw the Liberals, you know, only gain one seat. But they're still, you know, shy, for shy of official party status where you get more legislative time, resources, money to, you know, do that work. And obviously we saw the NDP, you know, shave off nine seats from, from official opposition. So this could be, you know, a real um, change moment for the party. And I think that some fresh blood, a lot of names that are being floated around right now uh, are, are, you know, well known and, and they've been around for a while in the party. But I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, rumblings that, that there needs to be some fresh blood, maybe someone completely new, uh, you know, Obviously, the NDP have a much bigger MPP pool to pick from, um, but they're not totally just limited in, in MPP. So I'm kind of waiting to see if someone comes out of the woodwork here, someone from beyond the caucus, uh, to throw their hat in the ring. Uh, we should mention, uh, since we've been talking about Andrea Horvath stepping down, uh, she is still an MPP. I mean, she did win her seat. And uh, the last I heard is she's going to stay on. Uh, well, I, the other side of that is usually, yeah, until she announces her candidacy to run for mayor in Hamilton. I, I guess she's got a few months to make that decision, but she is going to be a backbench MPP and still there. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, from what I'm hearing from the the party side and, and insiders there is that she's going to be sort of a small L leader. So people will definitely be looking to her. You know, she's been at the helm since 2009. People will be looking to her, you know, for advice and direction. Uh, you know, her chief of staff and campaign manager, Michael Balagas, said that he's going to be staying on until September, you know, to kind of help the team transition uh, and, and all that, that, you know, sort of happens behind the scenes. But I think we've all been parsing Andrea Horvath's uh, words these days, because as we know, the deadline to run for council uh, in Hamilton is August 19th. And we were sort of trying to read between the lines when she said, you know, she's going to stay on and represent the people of Hamilton. You're right. You know, she held on to her seat in Hamilton Center, uh, but she didn't exactly say, you know, how long she would stay on as MPP. Uh, and I think, of course, she would have a very good shot of running for Hamilton mayor and winning that one. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it, it might be hard too, like just from a personal standpoint to kind of like we saw how emotional she was on election night um, stepping down. It was a really powerful time. And so it might be tough for her, you know, to kind of sit on the sidelines uh, when, when the House comes back in September. So uh, I think all eyes are, are waiting to see what she does next. Well, the mayor's race in Hampton's uh, getting a little crowded, so I, I don't know if she can wait till August <laughs> to make up her mind on that. But, well, that's another story. You mentioned the Liberals. I mean, we've got a couple of minutes left here, Sabrina. Uh, another leaderless party, Stephen Del Duca, of course, resigned on election night as well. 
Uh, any any talk, any uh, scuttlebutt about about who might step in there? I know when Kathleen Wynne stepped down, uh, the interim leader was John Fraser, uh, and he hung in there for the while until, of course, they elected Stephen Del Duca. Uh, there, there's only eight people in caucus; not a lot to choose from here. Does anybody's name, uh, you know, being bounced off the walls here as a potential interim leader? Anyway. Yeah, you know, Frazier's name keeps coming up, uh, you know, kudos to him kind of doing that that work uh, for maybe what might be the second time now. But, you know, there are some new uh, there are some new folks that that are getting a lot of buzz as well. Uh, Mary Margaret McMahon, who actually, you know, uh, stole the seat back from the NDP uh, over in, in uh, Beaches East York in Toronto, uh, former councillor. Uh, she's been getting a, a lot of praise uh, for, for winning that seat. Uh, and, and also Mitzi Hunter, you know, holding on to her spot in Scarborough Guildwood. Uh, I think, you know, someone like Hunter um, or even Frazier might kind of run the risk of uh, getting criticized um, with their connections to Kathleen Wynne, which is kind of what we saw, and, and the previous uh, liberal leaders, which is what we saw, you know, Del Duca have to contend with uh, from from the PC and the NDP critics. And I, I think, you know, even the liberals I'm speaking with, this is also a moment of reckoning for them. Uh, they, uh, you know, even the, even some of the lefties, if I can call them that, uh, in the party are, are, are also wanting, you know, the party to take a more progressive stance. Um, they really were, were very upset with what happened. Just a brutal night for them. Seats that they thought they had in the bag, like Toronto St. Paul's, um, they, they did not win those. And the NDP managed to hang on to some of them. So this is a big moment for that party as well. I think even um, the executives on, on the party, you know, the people who are kind of running the show of, of the party apparatus themselves, even on the NDP side, I think, you know, they, there might be a shakeup on, on that front, too. Yeah, I, I didn't mention Mitzi Hunter because I assumed that she was probably going to take another run at the leadership. Uh, you know, being a veteran like that that she is, and, and as I say, there's not too many uh, other choices at this stage. Of course, the other side of that too, and there's some rumors around the uh, the GTA. Uh, I guess it was last week uh, that you guys were talking about that uh, there's a, a prominent Toronto MP, Liberal MP, who may step down uh, to run for the leadership, and uh, it doesn't happen very often. It has occurred once in a while. Bob Ray did that, uh, of course, when he was a federal member for the NDP and came down and became the leader of the Ontario Party. Uh, so that's always an option, I suppose, for somebody like that. But uh, it's it's pretty gray area right now as to who's actually you know got the impetus to do that. And as you mentioned, with both the NDP and the Liberals, you know, I, I think the message they should both have received after election night is don't just recycle old, old people and old ideas. What's new? What do you guys got new? And I'm sure that's going to be front of mind when they decide on a permanent leader. Yeah, absolutely. You're talking about um, Nate Erskine Smith uh, yeah. from Toronto, who who says he's seriously considering it. And you know, when you talk to a lot of people, they say they're they're seriously considering um, throwing their hat in the ring right now. But you know, at this point, I think you know the parties are kind of licking their wounds. There's a lot of debriefing happening behind the scenes. You know, a real election postmortem where they can say, you know, here's what we went where we went wrong. You know, here's what we need to do. We have four years. Uh, to kind of build things up. And, and meanwhile, you know, Doug Ford kind of has this majority and um, a, a big, you know, mandate. He, he, he made a lot of promises, uh, affordability issues, you know, big infrastructure projects. And so four years from now, you know, if someone, an opposition leader is, is standing up there and saying, you know, Doug Ford promised this and it's a hospital here and it's an empty field that, you know, that, that can be a really 
powerful moment. So four years is a very long time. There's a lot happening. Uh, one thing that, you know, I'll just add that liberals uh, that I've been hearing, you know, increasingly from liberals is that they need to stop talking down to Ontarians. And that's kind of um, the message they've been getting. You know, it's kind of like vote for me or else <laughs> was a bit of their their attitude. And, you know, the, the choice is yours was their was their campaign slogan. And I think, you know, that um, that might have rubbed a lot of uh, voters the wrong way. Obviously, we know, you know, turnout was abysmally low and, and there's a lot of factors at play there, too. But I think uh, this is going to be, you know, a very interesting four years. Um, and right now, Doug Ford pretty much has uh, uh, free reign to, to do what he wants while the opposition parties are going to be weakened. So I think, you know, this is kind of going to fall on Green Leader Mike Schreiner to um, to really, you know, uh, punch above his weight, which he which he tends to do in the House. Uh, but but yeah, it's going to be very interesting when we come back in September. Yeah, I guess that's the message to take away for the Liberals. Uh, the sky is falling is not the message people want to hear during the campaign. Uh, anyway, there's a lot of stuff going on there, Sabrina. I really appreciate you taking some time to talk to us about this. Uh, take care, and we'll talk again soon. Yeah, anytime. Thanks so much. You betcha. Sabrina Nanji, of course, publisher of Queen's Park Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, get into the crypto markets, guys. Come on. Are you going to be a Luddite in the financial system? The times are changing. You don't want to get left in the dust. That's the message we were getting from an awful lot of people not that long ago. Uh, as a matter of fact, Pierre Polyev, of course, is running for the uh, conservative leadership, uh, has been a big proponent of uh, cryptocurrencies and, and basically chiding the government for not getting on the bandwagon. Well, uh, there have been some tumultuous changes, I guess, in people's attitudes toward that and uh, some, well, interesting downturns, I guess, in cryptocurrency in the last little while. So let's try to make some sense of it all. And uh, to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program, Mark Yamada. Mark is the president and CEO of Pure Investing Incorporated. Uh, and uh, Mark, we need your expertise and we need your 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 explanations here as to what's going on. Uh, you know, we, I, I think a lot of people bought into the story about crypto and thought, uh, as Pierre Polyev and so many others did, that this is, this is what we've got to get into. What's going on? What was the allure then? And why all of a sudden is the bottom seem to be falling out of it? Well, it's a, it's a very human thing, and it goes back to the beginning of time, and it it's what keeps humans alive. It's it's fear and greed, uh, and the fear was of missing out. Uh, people saw tremendous fortunes being made in the early days of cryptocurrency, and they feared missing out. And then people made excuses for why they should jump in, and uh, one of the reasons was, oh, this is the modern thing. This is going to completely uh, redefine finance for the future. And uh, either you're going to have to be there or be square, as they used to say. Uh, so that gave some people the excuse to go and uh, buy in at higher levels. But the, the reality is it's, it's always been the same. You see somebody making uh, a quick buck somewhere else, and you want to make a quick buck also. Uh, and what's happened over the past little while, and it's, it's happened in conjunction with uh, a general decline in the market because of inflation fears and and for some very relig uh, uh, legitimate reasons, uh, fear that multiples would get crushed in the in the highly leveraged technology stocks. And that fear has just poured over into the crypto market that really had no reason for being where it was. I mean, we've talked about this before. Uh, yeah. Cryptocurrencies really are beanie babies. They're not backed up by earnings. They don't earn, they don't make any money. They don't pay a dividend. They don't pay you any interest. Um, but, you know, human beings are very clever. Uh, and uh, particularly human beings and lawyers who are in the securities markets were finding ways to create products using cryptocurrencies 
that could actually uh, create yield. So if you borrowed uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, either to short them or to put them together in pairs, uh, these various companies popped up and said, we'll pay you to lend us your cryptocurrency. And by trading them and creating lending uh, revenues, they were actually creating some kind of income flow from currencies that actually didn't do anything themselves. They just sort of laid there uh, and uh, they were only worth what somebody else was willing to pay for them. Uh, so that's where we find ourselves today. Uh, these things have no value. They, like, they, if, you, if you look at how many there are, there are 10,846 cryptocurrencies. Uh, on the New York Stock Exchange, there are only 2,800 stocks. In, in Toronto, there are only 1,500 stocks. So 10,846 cryptocurrencies, none of which earn any money. They don't produce a product. Um, it, it, is, it is the greater fool theory writ large. Um, now, that being said, a 70% decline over the last year, uh, a drop in value from $3 trillion last November to under a trillion uh, this week. Uh, th that's a big loss, and those are real losses. But let's not feel too sorry for these folks, uh, because I think, as we've said before, uh, the average holding of cryptocurrency is estimated to be $1,000. That's the average. But the median, meaning the most number of people, own only about $191 worth of this stuff, or at least $191 worth at December of last year. It's worth 60 bucks today. So uh, you lose $130. You know, I, I lose that many golf balls in, in a month. <laughs> so let's be realistic about the losses that are being taken here. Uh, but the philosophy is is the same. People are greedy. They got into it, whether they want to admit they were greedy or not. Uh, they made excuses for why they should be buying this thing, hoping to sell it to somebody else, some other sucker at a higher price down the road. Um, and the pins have just fallen out of that. Now, it's not to say it's not going to happen again. Um, but I, I, I think we can do your viewers a great service by reminding them that people do not invest in Bitcoin, they speculate in Bitcoin. You invest in something that's going to pay you interest or a dividend uh, or produces something with an expected future value. There is zero expected future value in cryptocurrencies. Uh, and but that's I'll go back to you. The preface of this whole thing that you just mentioned, I think it's, it's very germane to the conversation here, Mark, is that we all want to get in on the ground floor and something that's going to be, you know, the next big thing. You know, years and years ago in St. Catharines, I, I knew a couple of guys who used to play cards with two guys that invented this game called Trivial Pursuit. And they, they, they oh, I should have invested it. They asked me, to, and look what could have happened. And the same thing with the Internet. Ah, that's not, that's not going to last. Boy, I should have invested in it. So they're always looking for that. It's really a get-rich-quick thing, but there's... The thing I was always amazed by is, as you just mentioned, there was no foundation for that kind of faith in this thing right now. Uh, Warren Buffett called it crap. He knows a little bit about money managing. Uh, you know, the head of the U.S. Security Exchange Commission basically uh, said, look, it's rife with fraud, scams, and abuse, yet people kept going after it. I, I just don't understand what the allure is. Uh, well, it is the, uh, the uh, lifelong allure to try to uh, get an advantage for yourself and your family, to try to make some money 
Uh, and uh, as, as much as making money, a lot of people fear uh, they go to the bar and the other guys around the table who are buying the beers all own cryptocurrency, and they do not. So just to be part of the crowd, uh, very often people, people will play this game. But what's happening this morning, and this is very interesting, we're, we're getting a bit of a bounce in technology stocks. Now, it's not to say that there's anything permanent or that a bottom has had, but there is no bounce in cryptocurrencies. So the NASDAQ is up 1.5% as we speak, but all the cryptocurrencies are down 5 to 8%, 5 to 9%. And, and that's partly because the infrastructure and the regulations around cryptocurrency just aren't there. And, and there are some fishy things going on. Um, uh, you, you saw that the, uh, that the organization uh, Celsius, in which the Caisse de Placement in, in Quebec invested, suspended trading. Now, if yeah. that echoes, it's because two years ago, GameStop trading was restricted by Robinhood. Uh, Robinhood said they couldn't handle the orders or there was a little bit fishy why they had to limit uh, their uh, uh, customers trading in GameStop. And, and there was a uproar because, because of that. Uh, and it's similar because the, the volumes that are there and the record keeping cannot, could not at that time keep up uh, to the uh, amount of interest on both sides, short and long for GameStop. And Robinhood, because they were regulated, had to slow the trading down and make sure that the accounts were straightforward. Today, we have organizations, I mentioned that are trading in and swapping and borrowing uh, bit, uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies from their unit holders. And what they're doing is they're co-mingling client products with their own. So uh, under a regulated environment, if you take, if you buy a security with a discount broker or uh, your bank, they have to create a separate account, and that those securities belong to you. They're in your, they may be in street name, but they they're in your trust account. In some of these cryptocurrency uh, uh, trading accounts they commingle all of these securities. This is not a good thing because what they're doing is they're then taking securities that belong to somebody else, you've signed them over for a particular purpose, and then they go into the blockchain where multiple ownerships are, are obscured uh, and they act as if it's their own. And if they don't keep good accounting, there's no trust account with your name on it. You've lost those assets. Uh, if you don't have the key to the, to that account, and only they have the key to their own accounts, trading accounts, you, you sort of sign them over when you've entered into these agreements with them. And they've been promising uh, 7 to 17, I, I've seen 25 and 50% returns promised by some of these uh, companies, and none of them are regulated. Now, th that being said, it's a regulation problem, and people have, have criticized the SEC for dragging their feet. But as you mentioned earlier, Gary Gensler at the SEC has, has said that these are frauds and scams out there. Gary Gensler, I have tremendous faith in Gary Gensler because two years ago when I, when I really started to work hard and study cryptocurrency um, and blockchain, I found a video on the MIT continuing learning program. And who's the professor at MIT giving that lecture but Gary Gensler? So he is one of the preeminent people who understand the technology 
and he is now the head of the SEC. Now, he, he does have a dark past. He was 18 years at Goldman Sachs, and they are certainly part of the, the, the dark conspiracy that has, yes. has led to all kinds of financial issues. But he understands the market. Not only that, he was the head of uh, the com uh, Commodities uh, uh, Exchange uh, Group, uh, the CFTC, uh, that there is a bill putting forward that puts all cryptocurrency under the CFTC. That's the Commodity Futures Trading Corporation. He was actually the chairman of that. So he understands commodities very well. And he actually traded currencies, was head of currencies for Goldman Sachs in Asia. So he understands uh, currencies. And I think that cryptocurrencies are indeed more like a currency, more like trading U.S. dollars or Japanese mm -hmm. yen or euros. Uh, than it is a, a commodity. And so he's the right guy in the right job to regulate this industry. And he's frustrated by a lot of the things that happen in, in Washington that don't get things done. But uh, I have tremendous confidence that he is the one who's going to see his way through because he, he himself personally is motivated by seeing new ideas come forward. Uh, and I think that's part of the promise of cryptocurrency. This was a way to get around the banks, who everybody hates in Canada, but we have to deal with them. Uh, but everybody loves to hate the banks. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the reasons to get involved in cryptocurrency and um, uh, decentralized finance, DeFi, as you will hear many people talk, is to try to stick it to the banks. Well, you know what? <laughs> not in Canada and not anytime soon. Uh, the banks are too powerful, uh, but they serve a, a very significant purpose, uh, as does regulation at protecting the well, public. Yeah, and I guess one of the words there is stability, isn't it? I mean, and isn't that one of the, uh, the, the, the parts of the credo for the people that are advocates for cryptocurrency? You, first of all, you have to instill in, in those people, the potential customers, uh, a, 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 a mindset that uh, the, these institutions are not reliable and they're out to get us. And if as soon as you believe that, it's much easier for you to accept something like this. But but as you say, things have changed though in the last couple of months, especially Mark, and, and that those people that had this fanatical, uh, you know, attachment to crypto has that faith been shaken? I mean, what's going to happen here? Oh no no no! Yeah, human beings are 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 lovely creatures. We're very simple at, at our core. Uh, if we believe something, we believe something. So there are lots of people who are still carrying the banner of gold. Uh, gold has not been a thing for 20 or 30 years, but there are still gold bugs out there. So there are people who are very, very loyal uh, to certain beliefs. Uh, they can't allow themselves to believe that they were ever duped. Is, that's part of it. Um, but it, it's a very basic human trait uh, not, to, uh, not to admit that you've made a mistake. Uh, I think you and I have done this with, with purchases that purchases that we've made <laughs> over the years. Uh, but if we can admit that we've made a mistake, we can then get over it and move on. Some people will never make that admission. It's going to come back. Yeah, It's just going to take a little more time than I thought, but it's going to come back. You just wait and see. That, that exactly. seems to be the mindset here. Exactly, exactly. So they're in a bit of a hole right now. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, there's some talk here from uh, the Securities Commission about things of this nature. Do, do, they, do they move in in situations like that? Is, is there a, a way clear for, for these guys to live within certain boundaries? Or is this just still going to be the Wild West as far as cryptocurrency is concerned? 
Well, I think very slowly they're moving forward. There are legitimate uh, organizations that are uh, searching for a real role for the use of blockchain, which is a very good and useful way uh, to track things. And it's being used today to track inventories for uh, organizations like Amazon and Walmart and uh, shipping containers and uh, natural gas shipments. Uh, Very, very useful blockchain. Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies don't have any part to play in that part of the technology. Uh, But uh, I'll I'll admit to being hopeful for one area uh, in the uh, cryptocurrency space, and that is uh, for the metaverse. Uh, I think what we learned for two years being out of the public eye is that you can actually carry on business virtually. And whether there will be the creation of a parallel universe, literally a parallel universe that is virtual, that will use uh, certain cryptocurrencies, probably uh, Ethereum, Ether, rather than Bitcoin, uh, as a a method of transacting in this virtual uh, environment, uh, that might be a real thing. Now, we're not there yet. The technology is there. Uh, all the companies are working very hard on this space. And if that comes to pass, there might be a future uh, for some of these cryptocurrencies as a form of exchange in those virtual universes. But in terms of valuing them, in terms of the real universe and real dollars and cents and real goods and services, uh, I think we have seen, and particularly as a hedge for inflation, which uh, Bitcoin was touted as at one point, um, I, I think I think it's not going to work as well as some people had hoped. Uh, fascinating subject. And I'm so glad you had some time to talk to us about this today. As always, Mark, thanks so much for this. Uh, stay well, and uh, uh, we'll talk a lot more about this, I'm sure, as this unfolds. Great, Bill. Take care. You betcha. Mark Yamada, President and CEO of Pure Investing Incorporated. It's amazing to see some of the quotes on this and uh, whether or not some people are going to backtrack. And as Mark just said, you know, the, the advocates, the zealots, and some people might even describe them, are basically saying, okay, you know, the system we've been using for hundreds and hundreds of years is, is corrupt. It's got to be this system, or, and to hell with the other one. Uh, and I guess the question Mark was just raising there is, can these two systems exist, uh, cohabitate uh, our financial world? I don't know. Yet to be resolved, I'm, I'm guessing, at this point, anyway. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.